the passage from the first letter of Peter that Christy read is a dear passage. Um, and it's a fascinating thing to have that letter probably written near the end of Peter's life, uh, contrasted with the gospel this morning um, at a much earlier uh, time and place, probably taking a wild guess, you know, 30, 30, 31, 32 years earlier, the, the story we heard and then the, the wonderful writing uh, that he is doing to churches that he has been a part of, of, of founding. Uh, and he calls them to remember the, the power and the beauty and the goodness if they have indeed tasted the Lord, if they've tasted the goodness of the Lord. And when we were singing this morning, uh, for me, it was a, a, a real tasting uh, and a remembrance of the goodness of the Lord. I don't remember ever singing the second song before, Zach. Was that new today? When I was sick, I guess, yeah. Anyway, wonderful. Um, these six short verses from John's Gospel, I'm going to try to open up, and there are many, many, many things that could be shared and taught from these six verses. I'm gonna to try to narrow it down to two, just two things. Um, but first, I wanna go back once again to, to the sermon two weeks ago that young Isaac Lasky preached here uh, as a, while he was visiting uh, as a missionary uh, from Thailand. And how he came uh, into the 21st chapter of, of John saying what any careful reader of the Gospel of John will, would have experienced. And that is, it felt like the, the Gospel came to an end at the end of chapter 20. And then all at once there's this other chapter. And, and he began to unfold that. And he unfolded it in a very wonderful way. But he did say one thing that was not true. And, uh, and I want to I just correct it. Um, he said that the Great Commission was not contained in John. Now, when he said that, he meant the form of words that most of us have come to know through the years that are contained at the end of the Gospel of Matthew and at the end of the Gospel of Mark and at the end of the Gospel of Luke. But the fact is, they are contained in John's Gospel. They're just given to us by John in a different memory of a different moment in Jesus' ministry because John in chapter 20, verse 21, says that Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. That's, that's the Great Commission. You have been called to go into the world in exactly the way that the Father in heaven called me to come into the world. And that's a commandment. That's a commandment given to you. That's a commandment given to me. That's not a commandment given to ordained people or special people or missionary people. It's a commandment given to all Christ's disciples. As the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends us. So listen again to the final words that we have in John's Gospel of the, of the Lord Jesus. These, these are the last words that John records for us or those who came after John records for us. And I wanna focus on two things, what I'm calling the truth of the gospel and the duty of a Christian disciple. The truth of the gospel and the duty of a Christian disciple. And I hope to, to, to reveal those both in some clarity from this, these six verses. 
Under the truth of the gospel, I want you to think with me this morning in this way. Knowing the truth of the gospel, speaking the truth of the gospel, undermining the truth of the gospel. Not a good thing. And living the truth of the gospel. Let's, let's look at those four aspects before we turn to the duty of a Christian. Obviously, the duty of a Christian is showing up in that last one, living, and really maybe in all of them, knowing the truth of the gospel. Why do we have in chapter 21 the stories we have? We have in this chapter very clear revelation given to us about two of the preeminent disciples of Jesus, two of those known in the beginning and known to this very day to have been very, very central to the life and ministry of Jesus. We have teaching that was given to Peter and we have the testimony and witness of what was given to John. Those of you that are familiar with the Gospels, and I hope that's all of you, know that from time to time, although there were times there were crowds and there were times there were smaller numbers and there was a time and a moment in Jesus' ministry when he chose 12 men to be apostles, even so, again and again in the Gospels, we hear the refrain, Jesus went apart and took with him James and John and Peter. James and John and Peter. James and John were brothers, the sons of Zebedee. It's not me. I've got the little red button on mine. Um, I always forget to unread button it, and then about Tuesday, Patrick says, have you not turned on your... Patrick's trying to keep me straight. It's an impossible job, but he does a good job. Uh, so, so, so Jesus frequently stepped apart with James and John and Peter, and James and John were brothers, the sons of Zebedee, but James is dead. James was, was called by Jesus, both of them were called sons of thunder, which seems to me to indicate that they were a handful. And James was such a handful that Herod killed him to just get rid of him. So by the time that we're reading today at the end of John's gospel, Peter and James, they had had a full ministry. John, John's brother, James, didn't. John and Peter had a full ministry. And almost certainly, almost certainly, not said by the text, but almost certainly, by the time these words were written, John the apostle is dead. And Peter is dead. And yet their personalities and what the gospel reveals about them and what this, the customs and the sayings among the, the people of God said about them make them two very, very significant examples of the ministry that all Christians are to live. That, that, that the way that God spoke to and taught in Christ to the first disciples was not because they were going to be forever special, but because they were going to be the first to follow. And as they followed, we would follow after them. So if you were, if you were to have apprenticed as a young woman or a young man, uh, to any skill or craft, you will have learned it from that person, but that person learned it from someone else. Uh, I don't know if any of you out there, the women do needlepoint. I've even known men that do needlepoint, but if you do it, somebody taught you, and whoever taught you was taught by somebody. 
And so to be a disciple is the same thing. Jesus taught the apostles who taught others, who taught others, who taught others, right down to us, right down to us. And, and so, so this, this text is showing us important lessons about those two prominent disciples. Knowing the truth of the gospel is revealed for us in two ways here. With Peter, it's been revealed in this way. Peter has been called by the Lord to be a shepherd. That's the, that's the word, the word shepherd and pastor are identical. They're the same word in two different forms. To be, to be a shepherd, to care for God's people, is to be a pastor. To be a pastor is to be a leader. To be a leader is to be a shepherd in the life of Jesus. Those are all synonyms. And Peter has been told that it is his calling from God to care for Christ's sheep. And he is to teach them and to tend them and to feed them. A shepherd feeds the flock of God by preaching the gospel and teaching the gospel. Preaching and teaching the truth is the fundamental calling of a shepherd. And then John is said to be the one whose very life and witness is true. So we see in the story of John that John, John is not described as a shepherd ever in, in, the, in the text, but he is described as beloved, the beloved, an old-fashioned way of saying that word. And his proximity to the Lord, his closeness to the Lord, his favor with the Lord, his assignment from the Lord, from the cross, to care for the mother of Jesus. Um, it's, it marks him out in a very amazing way. And the text says, this is the one who wrote this gospel. The gospel of John was written by that man, the beloved one, the one who was close to Jesus at the last, who walked in a very close loving friendship with the Lord Jesus that stood out among all of them. It's not that Jesus didn't love Matthew. It's not that he didn't love Thomas or he didn't love Peter or he didn't love Nathaniel or any of the rest of them. He did. But they all knew and experienced and observed something unique about the way John the Apostle and Jesus interacted with one another. And, and the text says to us today, and this is who wrote this gospel. And his testimony is true. His witness is true. The things that are written here are true. And they are written that you might believe them. And believing have life in his name. Now it's easy, it certainly was easy for me for a lot of my, my life to think the apostles are way up here. And, and us sheepdogs are way down here. I like to think of priesthood as being a shepherd's dog, a sheepdog. And, and like they were just super disciples and then there's us ordinary mortals. And I'm now convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that's to completely misunderstand the New Testament. What was to be true of me is revealed in what was true of them. I'm to be someone who understands the truth of the gospel, that I can share it, I can speak it, I can help you 
struggle with it, understand it. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian. The truth of the gospel is to be mine, to to know and to be able to speak. And the truth of the gospel is to be mine so that my life is a witness. And that's not because I'm a pastor. That's a unique calling. It's a specialized calling. It's It's not for everyone. It's a responsibility given. But to be one who knows the truth of the gospel and can share it in simple language is to be a Christian. And to, 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 to be a faithful witness is to be a Christian. And Peter and John are examples of that. They're examples for every woman in this room. They're examples for every man in this room. Just as Mary, the mother of our Lord, is an example for every man in this room. Because when God spoke, she obeyed. And that's the calling of a Christian. It's not about whether you're a man or a woman. And that speaking, that speaking is a part of it. I've never, I've never been required. I've been uh, deposed by lawyers. It's not fun. If there's a lawyer in the room, I don't mean any offense. Uh, but, but in general, if you get called into a dispute in the law and you get deposed by one side or the other, it can be a very unpleasant experience. I may have a witness or two out there. Um, but, I, but I've never done that thing that I always used to see on TV where you had to put, you know, put, put your hand on the, on the Bible and swear, you know. Um, I don't know if that's still what goes on. I hope it is. But, but at least on Perry Mason, it happened all the time. <laughs> and uh, and, and the, the witness is told, to, is, is swearing before the, con- before the community in that, in that courtroom and that judge and ultimately before God, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And the reason that came into English law and made it into American law was because everyone that was a faithful Christian knew that except for the grace of God, people would lie. People would fudge. People would defend their own people against other people. And the truth would not be in them. But Jesus said, if I come to you, if I touch your life, if I enter your life, if I become your Lord, you are going to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so the courts required, as the culture was changed by the gospel, century by century, the courts required a Christian to tell the truth by swearing to God that what they were going to say was the truth. Well, a disciple is called to that. We're to know the truth and we're to speak the truth. We're to be able at, a, at any time and place to speak the truth. When we were in, in Lent, starting into Lent, and we were re- reviewing the Ten Commandments after a season in which we hadn't been saying them on Sunday, I, I tried to point out, I hope, I hope effectively, that to, to the commandment that we should not be false witnesses is a commandment that we should never lie. Never. Now, if, you, if, you, if you're honest with yourself at all for just a few moments, you know that you do. We fudge. We trim. We, we duck. We, we sometimes... Um, 
say things that are not true or not quite true. And in general, when we're, when we're doing that, we're often distinguishing ourselves from someone who does it worse than us. You know, so, well, I, I, I don't lie as much as he lies, or, you know, I don't fib more often than he fibs. But we're told that's contrary to God's will. We're to be truth speakers. But here in this gospel passage, we see that an untruth had spread among Christians. There were Christians saying something that wasn't true about what Jesus had said to Peter with regard to John, the apostle. And this Holy Scripture corrects that. And it's, it's a very small thing at one level. It looks so small. Let me remind you what I'm, what I'm talking about. Peter has been interrogated, quite honestly, by the Lord. It's been painful for him. You cannot imagine it for, for very few minutes and not realize how, how much emotional tar, trauma and turmoil was in Peter that Jesus would ask him, do you really love me? Do you really love me? Do you really love me three times? And we know we know how painful that must have been. And of course, at that moment, what would any of us, if we were in Peter's shoes, want to do? We'd want to change the conversation. Wouldn't we? I mean, t- Mike, would you bop, bop me? It's, it's like if, if this morning, well, it actually did happen to me this morning. You know, if, if your beloved spouse says something to you that's uncomfortable for you, You'd like the subject changed. Well, Peter tries to change the subject by turning attention to John. Now, apparently, it doesn't say this in the text, but apparently what had happened is this. This is what I believe is behind the story. John the apostle is dead. Peter is dead. Peter was crucified upside down on a cross in Rome. And John, the only one of the 12, has died an old man. And now people are saying, well, Jesus said John wouldn't die before Jesus came back again. And that's what Peter's referring to. That's what Peter's referring to. Apparently, apparently, it's not in the text, but apparently, Jesus, who has repeatedly told his disciples that if they're faithful, they are going to suffer, he has almost certainly revealed to the apostles that they are going to be asked by God to give their lives for the spread of the gospel. And at least some of them have begun to recognize that what Jesus means is they're going to die before their time because they're sharing the gospel. But John is not. John's going to live to old age. Now, what got twisted and began to undermine the truth, this is where I want to go, undermining the truth was something that's not quite right. It's just not true but it's believed to be true. People are saying, well, Jesus was wrong. He's he's died, and Jesus hasn't returned. And in this text, disciples of John the Apostle 
are saying. That's not what Jesus said to Peter. What he said to Peter was, what is that to you, Peter? That's none of your business. That's between God and John, not you. And if it is my will that he live until I come, not he will live until I come, it's very subtle. It's so subtle that you could read it and hear it for maybe even almost a lifetime and not understand what it's telling us about telling the truth, about knowing the truth and passing on the truth and not a partial truth. You know, if, it, I've already picked on Rick once, so I pick on him again, I guess. He knows it's, it's done in love. But suppose, suppose yesterday Rick was not so nice to Marie. Let's just say he was grumpy uh, with Marie, and uh, and he kicked a, a hole in the in the, in a door, yeah, uh, or something. And then Marie tells Cindy, Rick was really awful on Monday. He got so mad he kicked a hole in the door. And then Cindy tells Kelly with two E's um, that uh, that Rick got so mad on Monday that he kicked Marie. And, and, then, and, then, and then Kelly happens to run into Gretchen, and she says, oh, did you hear that Marie had to go to the emergency room because, <laughs> and, and the story, there was some truth there, but the story got out of control, right? That happens all the time. It happens among men, and it happens among women. And what makes it even worse is that it doesn't take very many times for the people telling people to be absolutely convinced it's the absolute truth. And so someone that you respect and someone you know could be married to, who knows, somebody that that you don't think of as in any way not being a person of integrity is actually telling you something that's not true. And frequently, among Christian people, it undermines the gospel. It undermines the truth of the gospel in, 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 in many, many ways. Now, in this instance, what was being undermined is that Jesus had made a mistake. That Jesus had told an untruth. And Jesus never told an untruth. The moment someone starts to think that Jesus told an untruth about something so insignificant or seems to us, it's not very long before they can be deceived to believe that he was wrong about something really big. It undermines the truth of the gospel. It undermines the truth of the gospel. Now, sometimes it's just unintentional. We don't, we, we, we honestly, truly believe what we're telling someone is true and yet it's not and when that happens the truth of the gospel is undermined now sometimes people openly defy the truth of the gospel sometimes people are in open defiance of God's word the scriptures will say some people intentionally suppress the truth because they are evil. Intentionally suppress the truth. No, it's not true. And don't want the truth heard. Don't want the truth spoken. 
don't want the truth believed. And in those cases, obviously, we understand. It's, for us, it's not hard to immediately go, well, of course, that's going to undermine the truth, correct? If, if I get you to believe a lie, I've undermined the truth. And when a Christian, when a person professing to be a Christian does that, the cause of Christ suffers. The cause of Christ suffers. We are to be truth speakers. We are to be sure that what we're saying is correct, especially if it has any negative consequences for the life of the people of God in in our location, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our town, in our nation. Now, John, unlike Peter, is not described as a shepherd, although perhaps he was. It's not said. But John's witness is that he lived a life that everyone that knew him admired. John lived as a witness to the truth. And that that applies to me, and that applies to you. Coming to faith begins when we hear the gospel, when somebody finally expresses the gospel in simple language, and we realize it applies to us, that the reason the Son of God came is because of your sins. He came because if he didn't come, you are lost. And he died because of your sins. That you could be set free and not suffer the eternal punishment that your sins deserve. Now when that's heard, for many of us, for many years, it does not change us because we don't believe it. We think we're better than other people. We're not as bad as so-and-so. We're not this, we're not that. We don't believe it. And though we may be around it, we may hear it, and we may be a participant in the life of a community that says it, it has not changed us. But once it does, once it does, it begins something on the inside of us that starts to be known to us. And we know when we say an untruth. And we know when we've done a thing that's wrong. And we know that that's not consistent with our faith and what God has done for us in Christ. And so, as the scripture says, we are step by step aware of our failings, aware of our sins, aware of our mistakes, and asking God for forgiveness. And step by step, increment by increment, little degree by little degree, we are being changed from the inside. We're not being changed because we're being scolded. We're being changed because inwardly we know what God has done for us in Christ and we want our lives to be in alignment with that. We want to know the truth and live the truth and be able to speak the truth in love. We see in this, it's, it seems to me, it's the fourth rebuke to, to Peter. You know, he got, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And now he's told, what is that to you, Peter? And that's a scold. That's like me saying, well, what about Jeffers? You know, and Jesus saying to me, what is that to you, Shuler? 
What matters is you and me. What matters is you and me. You follow me. You follow me. And those of us in this room probably all know that's the way it all began for Peter. It began when he, when he heard the Lord say, follow me. What God wants for you will only come when you receive me and follow me. And Peter began. And here, all those years later, Jesus is saying, that's the end as well, Peter. The issue is you following me, not what is somebody else doing. It's you that I'm speaking to. And that's a message to every disciple, male, female, young, old, rich or poor. If we claim to be Christ's, are we following him? To follow him means that I'm learning what he taught and I'm wanting my life conformed to that. And it's not hard to know if that's going on in someone's life. It's going on in someone's life if they are paying attention in a day-by-day way through prayer and reading and study. What did Jesus say? a man like me should be? What did Jesus say a woman like me should be? How do I bring my life into conformity with God's will for me revealed in Jesus, my Lord, my Savior? So if you ask yourself, am I studying the word of God? Am I learning what Jesus taught? Am I seeking to bring my life prayerfully into alignment with it? Well, if you say yes, that's a wonderful thing. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you're a great role model at this point in your life. Doesn't mean you've got every answer. Doesn't mean you know all the stuff. It just means that you have absolutely decided to follow Jesus. And he's becoming first in your life. He's becoming first in your life, not second. And my experience, and I think it's universal, but it may not be, but my experience is, if you don't have someone else in your life that you talk to about your walk with Jesus, you're missing a critical, critical part of the truth. It's not enough to come to Sunday. It's not enough to have a daily discipline of reading what Jesus said. We need, all of us, I believe, somebody, flesh and blood. It may be our spouse. It may be a close friend. It may be a small group. But we need someone that we talk to honestly about our struggle to be the kind of person Jesus wants us to be and have the, uh, the gift and the grace that comes in the community of faith when one brother helps another brother, when one man helps another man, when one woman helps another woman. This is meant to be how parents raise their children. This is meant to be how couples relate to one another. But if that's missing, we have to find a way to put it in our life or we won't grow in Christ. We're called, just like Peter, 
and just like John, to be able to speak the truth and to live the truth. And for that to happen, we need one another as well as the grace of God. So take away for this week this question. Am I a follower? Am I a follower? Because Jesus says, follow me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.